0: This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded.
1: I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24/7 plus with premiums as low as 0 dollars per month i can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check independence has given me coverage i can count on and they'll do the same for you learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com talk radio
2: 1210 wphd wphdhd HD 3 philadelphia from the cherry hill volvo studios where relationships matter Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie.
4: Good evening and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Well, I hope you all had a wonderful Valentine's Day as we continue learning important information about heart health. This week, our topic is heart surgery, which has evolved very quickly in many directions. Here to update us is Dr. Nimesh Desai, an MD and PhD, who's an Associate Professor of Surgery at Penn Medicine and the Director of the Penn Aorta Center. He's also a Senior Fellow in the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at Wharton and holds leadership positions in the evaluation of quality of care in the Penn Heart and Vascular Service Line. Welcome, Nimesh.
5: Thank you, Marianne. It's a pleasure to be here today.
4: Well, so much great information to share. I'd like to start by painting a picture for our listeners. We learned last week or two weeks ago that the heart is a muscular pump and it sends out fresh oxygen-filled blood to the circulation. And that fresh blood leaves the heart through the aorta, the largest artery of the body, which then passes through chest and abdomen, giving off branches that feed the rest of the body. But the very first branches are the coronary arteries that feed the heart itself. The heart needs oxygen in order to do its job as a pump. So that leads to our first question. What is coronary artery disease?
5: So coronary artery disease is a term that encompasses the the process of developing plaque inside your coronary artery. So if you've heard the term cholesterol plaque or blockages, uh, that's what people tend to mean when they say coronary artery disease. So our arteries on our heart are very special because they bring the blood supply to the heart muscle itself. When that flow is impeded or when there's a blockage causing uh, a lack of oxygenated blood getting to the heart muscle, then the heart can respond by becoming what we call ischemic or starved of oxygenated blood. And that can cause things like chest pain. It can cause, uh, Uh, shortness of breath or inability to exercise or fatigue, but in the worst case scenarios where the artery closes off quickly, it can actually cause what's called a heart attack or a myocardial infarction.
4: And we can see signs of that on a cardiogram, an EKG, and you can also with an ECHO, there's so many tools that help us make that uh, diagnosis, blood tests, uh, an ECHO, which is the ultrasound of the heart. If, If a heart does have, go through that lack of oxygen for a certain amount of time, then there's damage in the muscle wall and it doesn't pump as well as we'd like to see it. So we want to talk about the choices for therapy. Let's say somebody has a partial blockage and they have what you would call stable angina. Some people say angina, but angina meaning depending how much of a treadmill you're on, are you going up and down steps? Are you lifting your grandchildren? Are you carrying heavy boxes? Every once like in a while you get that burning in the chest. Let's talk about that because we want to treat it before it goes to a, a full thickness heart attack.
5: Yeah, so that's a really important distinction between what we call stable coronary disease and unstable coronary disease. So unstable coronary disease uh, is is an area where you know people's life can be at risk. Uh, and it's a situation where uh, some of that plaque that we talked about earlier, that plaque that's usually made out of cholesterol and calcium uh, that causes the blockage uh, can either rupture uh, and acutely close off the artery. So in an instant, having flow in the artery and then not having flow in the artery, or that's what we call myocardial infarction. Um, uh, And then there's also the kind of unstable disease where people are just having increasing symptoms. So their symptoms are getting worse and worse, even with limited exertion. Uh, And those patients need to be evaluated uh, in in an urgent setting in an emergency department uh, and typically almost always will undergo an invasive approach to diagnosis. So that means that they go to what's called a catheterization lab where cardiologists will pass a tube through their wrist or through their artery in the groin and actually take some pictures to look inside their arteries uh, to see. Uh, if there are blockages, or if there are blockages that require immediate therapy. So that's unstable disease. But the larger group of people who have blockages in their coronaries have stable uh, angina. And that is that they have chest pain when they exert themselves. Maybe they're carrying a couple of groceries, uh, bags of groceries up a flight of stairs. So they're exerting themselves more than would be typical. Uh, And they get a little bit of chest heaviness. They stop for a second. And it goes away. So, in that chronic, stable angina group, that's the group where I think we're learning a lot more about the various roles of medical therapy, uh, invasive testing, and then revascularization.
4: And and I like the way you emphasize that you constantly reevaluate because the medical therapy, as you say, has become so helpful that we, if we can stay something even minimally invasive you like to treat with medications before we get more aggressive. So let's say you see a patient, Namesh, and um, you've done a cardiac catheterization, and you see one or more vessels that are blocked. What are the types of revascularization, or you're the plumber and you want to open that blockage? How do you decide to go about that?
5: Right. So that's a great question. I think, if I could take one step back and say, how do we actually get to the point where we're making that decision about catheterizing someone that's an area i think we've actually learned a lot about recently so there was uh, actually a very large uh, multinational trial where they looked at taking people who had those stable symptoms that we were talking about uh, and and basically randomizing them uh, to either continue with medical therapy uh, or to undergo a heart catheterization which is that test again where we put that Tube into the heart using x rays to look for blockages. So, really trying to figure out should we even check if there are blockages or not? And what that study found actually is that if you have stable symptoms, good medical therapy first is really the mainstay of care. That going to the cath lab and getting an angiogram and getting stance or bypass surgery doesn't improve your long term survival if you have stable symptoms. Uh, and so at least out to about five years, which is how long they've studied patients in that study. Uh, and so that actually has really changed our perspective a little bit on when to do heart catheterization and when to revascularize people. Now to get to your question, what, what, what is the optimal way of revascularizing? As you alluded to, it really is important to look at the severity of the disease the risk factors the patient has for developing uh, myocardial infarction or uh, progression of that disease, uh, and then what the risk factors the patient would have to undergo different types of revascularization. So typically, we think that more simple or straightforward lesions or blockages are really well treated with stents. Uh, And as the disease becomes more complex, uh, if it involves More than uh, one vessel, Uh, and in particular in patients with diabetes, for instance, where often the entire, there aren't discrete blockages, but they're actually, uh, there's diffuse disease throughout the vessel, that in those situations we tend to favor bypass surgery. So uh, if patients have more diffuse, complicated disease, uh, if their heart function is poor, uh, and they have severe three vessel disease, then those patients typically are treated with bypass surgery. And for patients who have uh, more straightforward one or two vessel disease, who are not diabetic, or who have risk factors that make bypass surgery a little bit more dangerous, those patients are very well treated with
4: stents. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners, and I think people are familiar with the terms, but just to make it clear while they're listening. So stents, you can do during cardiac catheterization you feed them up the trail where you're sending the dye, and you can insert a little straw into that narrowed area that allows the blood to pass through again or bypass surgery means the baltimore beltway or the you know the media bypass for people who live near us there's a road from a to b but if there's a traffic jam your your uh cell phone gives you an alternate route Bypass surgery means we take a vessel, a healthy vessel. It used to be veins from the legs, but now we take so arteries are stronger, more muscular, and last longer, an artery from the chest and move it to that blocked roadway. And we sew it above and below and the blood flows in different direction. And what uh, an evolution as a medical student <laughs> back in the late 70s, it would take from 7.30 to one thirty to fix or repair one vessel a few handful of years later, my dad had five vessels repaired by in three hours. And now we can do bypass surgery robotically. It's incredible. But I I know, so bypass surgery means we're actively fixing a block vessel that's on the surface of the heart. I want to make that distinction. And you can take this in any direction. Open heart surgery means we're opening your heart to go in and fix a valve. But bypass surgery in the old days would open your chest, but it's not open heart. Do you want to address those <laughs> many topics I've put out there?
5: Uh, yeah, there's a lot of different terms people use. And, and even sometimes you'll call having a stent, having heart surgery. Um, but the, the typical sort of defining point is there are di- there are procedures done with catheters. So we don't do any major incision Uh, and they're guided instead of having our eyes to guide us like when i have a chest open and i'm operating on someone uh, we're using x-rays to guide those catheters to where they want to be and typically uh, that involves if there's a blockage ballooning that blockage open then placing as you said that stent that little wire mesh in there that has a drug on it usually uh, to prevent the heart from the artery from closing back up again Uh, so that's that's what stents are, and, and typically people use the term drug-eluting stents to describe the stent that has something on it that prevents the blockage from recurring in there. Um, and then bypass surgery, again, is, is done kind of in the more classic way where we open up the chest. The, uh, it's all done visually with direct visualization. Um, typically when there's uh, a lot of blockages, we go through the middle, of the chest, so we go through the sternum, the breastbone, uh, and that allows us to access all the different sides of the heart uh, if people need three, four, or more bypasses. Um, in situations where uh, the disease is more limited, but we still think bypass surgery is favorable, or we want to do what we call a hybrid procedure where we will use one arterial graft, surgically we'll put it in, onto the heart, uh, and then also put stents in other lesions. Uh, sometimes we can actually do that robotically. So, we don't open up the chest. Uh, We use a robot to access into the chest uh, with uh, arms that can let us take the artery on the chest wall, what's called the internal mammary artery, which is like the main survival benefit of bypass surgery is having that internal mammary put on the front of your heart, um, that we can actually take that down robotically and then sew it onto your heart with just a either a very small incision or just a few ports. Um, So that's an amazing revolution. Uh, I had the privilege as a medical student, you were just talking about medical school, so I had the privilege as a medical student uh, in the late 90s to actually scrub on the first robotic coronary bypass ever done uh, in the world, the world's first completely completely robotic endoscopic bypass surgery, and that was done uh, in Canada.
4: Oh, that's incredible. We're here with Dr. Namesh Desai, and we'll be back after the break.
6: Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com.
4: Back on your radio doctor with dr Namesh desai learning so much about bypass surgery and stents Namesh, before we go on it's incredible to think that you scrubbed in on the very first in the world totally robotic uh, bypass surgery that you know an extra gold star next to your name because in the end it's all about experience and we are so fortunate to live in philadelphia which is hospital row Booyah, Boston and New York, but (laughs) we have some pretty awesome um, experience right here in Philly. One thing I want listeners to hear, it's only in recent years that the stents that we insert into that blockage elude medication, which just is such a bonus because it just encourages that artery to stay open. And the other thing we talked about that I find very interesting is we're just starting to collect data and information to say, gee, if a person You talked about looking at a patient and saying, what are their risk factors? Are they elderly? Do they have diabetes? Do we want to do robotic surgery in them because it's safer than opening their breastbone, possibility of infection, and all those complications? So if we compare, does a person do well or better with surgery versus robotic? It depends on the patient to begin with, right? What is their underlying disease? Maybe we go with robotic in a healthy young person, because their disease isn't as their heart disease isn't as bad, but in an elderly person would do robotic because it's less invasive. So would be comparing apples to oranges, yes?
5: Yeah, I think there's a lot of different uh, concepts that go into the decision making there. But one of the things that I think is really important when you have if you're going down the road of having any type of surgical repascarization, so putting some kind of bypass onto the heart, whether it's with a big incision, a small incision, robot, no incision—is you want to make sure that the the most important blockages, the biggest arteries that supply the biggest part of the heart muscle, are being definitively treated. Um, and so that becomes you know a really close decision that you make with your surgeon, with your interventional cardiologist, with your medical cardiologist in terms of determining what really is the best treatment. Um, for you. And, you know, we really start thinking about people over their whole lifetime. Uh, and uh, young person, uh, you, you want to have a therapy, even if it's more invasive up front, uh, that is going to last uh, them 15 or 20 or 30 years. Um, and I think those are things that also weigh into the decision.
4: So let's say we have a patient who needs uh, a valve repair, a cardiac valve repair or replacement. Maybe they've had um, a congenital, they were born with an abnormal heart valve. In the old days, I'm sure you used to see more people who had um, aortic stenosis or damaged aortic valve or mitral valve from rheumatic fever. Voila, antibiotics have wiped a lot of that population. We, you know, we don't see that as much. So now tell us what are the typical reasons why somebody might need heart valve Repair or replacement.
5: All right. So the heart valves are structures. There's four of them in our heart, uh, and they're one-way valves, just like in plumbing, to keep everything flowing the right direction and to stop things from backing up. So every heartbeat, and your heart beats, you know, hundred thousand times a day or something. Um, every heartbeat, uh, that valve has to open and close uh, to let the blood out and stop it from going back in backwards. Um, over time, they can wear out. So one of the most common things that we see in valvular disease is really just degenerative disease of the aortic valve. Um, and that is that over the millions and millions of times that your aortic valve opens and closes over your lifetime, eventually it tends to wear out when you get into your knees and early 80s. There's also a large population of people in percentage it's not a large population who are born with a uh, aortic valve that instead of having three sort of doors what we call cusps that will close it only has two that's what's called a bicuspid valve and that's present in about one to two percent of the population it doesn't sound like a lot but that's actually a pretty common congenital heart problem uh, probably one of the most common and bicuspid valves actually carry with them a whole host of issues. So um, they can be associated with aortic aneurysms. Uh, they can leak uh, or they can uh, narrow and not open properly. Sometimes they present even in early childhood um, they can present in at every point in life from the you know from young childhood to the 20s and 30s, where we tend to see bleaky bicuspid valves, and then 50s and 60s where we tend to see, bicuspid valves that are not opening and closing well anymore. Um, So in our practice, uh, for instance, that's the most common reason that we actually intervene on aortic valves Mm. in people who are under 70.
4: Wow. So in the end, I guess, Nimesh, there are four choices that you as the surgeon make with the patient. Is it going to be open the chest and open the heart itself? That's open heart surgery, or some valves can be replaced with the catheter, such you know, people hear the expression TAVR that stands for catheter, Aortic Valve Replacement. So we can either do it the old-fashioned open the heart way or the Star Wars way, and then you have to decide between a valve that's taken from an animal, like a piggy or a cow or a horse, depending what, how you want to sound, uh, or a mechanical, or I guess a, a valve made out of non creature material. How do you make those decisions?
5: All right. So this is where, you know, uh, I'll simplify it by talking most about aortic valve disease because it's the most common and the one where we have the most potential options uh, is, is you always mm-hmm. have to consider the lifelong, the, the life expectancy uh, uh, and the and the quality of life of the patient. So the decision you're going to make about how you're going to treat a valve problem Uh, in a 20-year-old, is going to be very different than how you're going to treat that same problem if the patient was 75. Uh, And uh, the reason is is, is really related to the fact that we don't have a perfect way to replace a human aortic valve. That anything we put inside a person to replace that valve carries with it some trade-offs, some 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 things that are better about one thing or another, and some things that are worse. So there's a few different options when we talk about valve replacement, and it really depends on what the problem is uh, and uh, what the age of the patient is. So if a valve is leaking, for instance, we try not to replace it at all. We'll try to fix it, whether that's the aortic valve or the mitral valve. So uh the mitral valve repair has been around for a long time repairing aortic valves is actually relatively new but in young people who have leaking bicuspid valves for instance we actually try to repair them when we can just to try and extend out their life expectancy with their own valve if that's possible the other thing we try to do in young people is use one of their own valves to replace the aortic valve so there's actually a really fancy operation called the Ross operation, which we do, uh, in young people, generally people under 60, um, where we can actually take a different heart valve, what we call the pulmonic valve and put it in the aortic valve position. And, and then it's your own valve. So you can run marathons and, uh, do all kinds of things with it. Uh, and you're not kind of limited by the prosthesis that you have inside you. And that's actually the only therapy that's ever been shown to actually give someone back a completely normal life expectancy who's needed a valve placement. We do have to put an artificial Mm -hmm. valve, actually a human preserved valve in the pulmonic position where we actually take the valve from, but that's that's well tolerated and people can go with that operation for 35, 40 years. So it's a good operation for young people. As you get older, we start Mm -hmm. to make this distinction between Uh, having to get a biologic valve, so one made out of, as you said, cow tissue or or a pig's valve, uh, or a mechanical valve, which is made out of carbon and metal. The downside of the biologic valve, and we don't have immune reactions to it typically, we don't reject it the way that we would reject animal tissue normally because it's treated in a special way, but over time they wear out, and they typically wear out somewhere between 10 and 20 years. Um, and it's not always predictable. Mechanical valves, on the other hand, require you to bond blood thinners, a drug called warfarin, uh, uh, for the rest of your life. And that drug is a little bit of a difficult drug to manage because it, uh, if you, it's it's a it basically works by. Uh, offsetting the effect of vitamin k which is really important in developing the clotting factors in your blood so if you eat leafy green vegetables with vitamin k in them for instance it could change your level of the drug and actually make it less effective so uh, that drug needs monitoring needs blood tests done every couple of weeks to make sure you're staying in the right level
4: so for people listening, if we're able to take tissue, heart t- uh, valve tissue from a pig or a cow and replace a person's uh, abnormal valve, uh, it might last a shorter time, but they don't have to be on a blood thinner. If they get the artificial valve, they're committed to, well, it should last longer because it's mechanical. It's not going to wear down the way the pig or cow's tissue would, but Some people can't tolerate coumadin, so that's going to, or that's the trade name for warfarin. We had a whole, we did a show last week on blood thinners for people who want to revisit that. But warfarin is known as coumadin or jantavin. So there are people who can't take that for whatever reason. So what comes to mind then is, and these are, this is why it's great to talk to you. You have such a broad experience. You're really going to guide patients to the right decision that's safest and gives the the, the, the most longevity. Let's say you have a young person, a young woman who you say, gosh, this is a, something you were born with. We want to give you more than 10 to 20 years. We want to get you through the rest of your life with this, but she hasn't gotten married yet. She hopes to become pregnant and pregnant women can't take Warfarin. Can you use a different blood thinner or how do you temporize or make a decision for somebody like that?
5: So, yeah, so um, if you already have a mechanical valve, for instance, and you and you get pregnant, um, that can be managed with uh, an injection, a Lovinox injection. Uh, I'd still consider that a little bit there experimental, um, but there's been pretty good experience with that. So you're, it's not an absolute no uh, in terms of being pregnant with a mechanical valve, although it has to be monitored. Uh, extremely carefully by a very knowledgeable and experienced team and there are risks there that are certainly more than would be typical Um, but in Mm -hmm. younger patients we really go for repair if we can so keep your own valve you don't need blood thinners there Uh, ross operation and the aortic position anytime we can in younger people Um, and then finally if we have to replace the valve and have to use a prosthetic to use a biologic valve in that mm-hmm. situation.
4: It's so great the way you explain the whole spectrum, Namesh, Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Namesh Desai.
0: Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand.
3: I'm Rob Strauber, Director of Intervention, one of your addiction experts from Recovery Centers of America. Today, I'm here to talk to you about intervention. Intervention is a very important step if your loved one is hesitant to access treatment or if you're worried that your loved one's unwilling to get help. It is important that you speak with one of our certified intervention specialists here at Recovery Centers of America. Having a certified intervention professional leading your team really helps the family with guidance. With education, with an opportunity to take a look at how we can best help your family system and your loved one access the treatment that they need and that they deserve. Having a certified intervention professional also helps the family system in the fact that the professional guiding your team is up to date with the most up to date information going on within the industry with best practices on how we can help the family system help their loved ones access the help that they need and deserve as you begin 2023 and a fresh beginning reach out to recovery centers of america if you or one of your loved ones needs help with drugs or alcohol call 877-938-0618 or visit recoverycentersofamerica.com slash devon We answer the phone and admit patients 24-7. Also, RSVP at rcaacademy.com for our free virtual continuing education course on intervention on January 12th. That's rcaacademy.com.
1: I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com.
7: When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like when it comes to diseases, can we strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in healthcare. Learn more at gene.com slash questions. Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by
0: Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC.
4: And we're back on Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Namesh Desai. Namesh, we were talking about valve repair and valve replacement. One of the things that comes to mind is if a patient has a replaced heart valve, be it uh, biologic tissue from an animal or artificial, please, please be so mindful. If you have a fever, contact your doctor immediately because your body thinks that that valve, either from another uh, being or artificial, as I said, metal and other materials, your body thinks it's a foreign body. So if you have bacteria in your blood from a cut or maybe a urinary tract infection. That bacteria can land on the heart valve, and what can happen?
5: So uh, when when those devices we put in inside your heart um, get infected, it's a big deal. It's a it's a very life threatening problem. Uh, it often, not always, but often, it requires another open heart surgery to take uh, that infected valve out. Uh, and the reason that is is, although antibiotics are really good at clearing infections in all kinds of parts of your body, when bacteria stick to artificial materials, the antibiotic just is not as effective in clearing it off of there. Um, so, people frequently need to have surgery. Um, and those surgeries are, can be very high risk. Uh, you know, if people come in with severe infections, blood infections, um, it can be a, a real challenge. So, the key thing is prevention, prevention, prevention. Uh, And so uh, there's been a lot of change in the guidelines about when to use antibiotics in people with valve disease. And a lot of those guidelines change to decrease or to limit the amount of antibiotic use to prevent overuse of antibiotics to to make sure that our antibiotics still work. And that's a good thing. Um, But they haven't changed when it comes to prosthetic valves. So if you already have a valve in, when you get dental work you should have antibiotics and that's probably the most important single way that bacteria get into our bloodstream with the, in people who have valvular heart disease uh, so if you have an artificial valve in uh, and you're getting dental work or other major invasive procedures uh, you should always get what we call prophylactic antibiotics or preventative antibiotics so that you don't get a bloodstream infection that infects the valve.
4: I'm very happy you remember to say the dental uh, word pre-dental antibiotics. And the other quick thing I wanted to mention, I asked a question about if a woman becomes pregnant, we want them to not be taking Coumadin or Gantavan because it can cause birth defects. It passes from mother to baby. So another take-home message. So let's talk about TAVR, transcatheter aortic valve replacement People hear that expression. Let's talk about that for a minute.
5: So revolutionary technology. Um, We did our first open valve replacements in the 1960s, um, and those were all done with open heart surgery. Uh, And uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, some cardiac surgeons and interventional cardiologists uh, started to experiment with different ways to try to take the valves that we had, these Mechanisms that open and close to keep blood flowing in the right direction, and mount them onto something uh, that is is basically like the stents we were talking about earlier, but much bigger, so that you could crimp it down onto a catheter of the size of your finger, let's say, uh, and actually introduce it into the body again, just use, without an incision, with just using uh, wires and catheters and X-ray to guide it. And then open it up inside your own heart valve, push your own heart valve out to the side and have it stay there and become a functioning valve and starts working right away. As a cardiac surgeon, when I first saw this technology, I couldn't believe that it wouldn't just get uh, ejected by the heart every time it beat. That when I put a valve in someone, I I sew it in. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's something that is not going anywhere, uh, and these devices are not sewn in. They actually stay in using radial force. That is, the device actually pushes out uh, and friction. That the old diseased valve that's full of big calcium chunks and is degenerated is actually really great for holding the stent to stent in the right place. And so, uh, you know, this went from something that we thought was kind of uh, impossible or, or kind of crazy to even try in people to, in 2023, the dominant way that we treat people with aortic valve disease. Because, you know, we talked about... It's interesting. Uh, we talked about some of the, uh, you know, some of these techniques and concepts that we're using in young people. but. The majority of people with aortic valve stenosis or aortic valve disease are actually in their late 70s or early 80s and have degenerative disease. And this works great. TAVR works great in those people.
4: That's what I was going to say, because it sounds like you need a little texture. Uh, Do I sound like an interior designer? Uh, You need a little texture for the new valve to catch on. So in a younger person, it it might not serve them as well, but you, you judge every case differently. And if that's the case too, are there any are there any negatives to going with the non-invasive? In my mind, I think I want you to get in there with your hands and open up that tomato and get in there and see the valve and <laughs> sew it in, you know, like Betsy Ross. But what you're saying is, aside from, you know, we always want to cause less pain to our patients, but but pain is kind of temporary. If opening the heart up and getting right in there is better, but, but you're, we have data to show that the Transcatheter approach less likely to cause trauma to the patient, infection, and all those side effects. So, uh, you know, we have to stay humble, right? Tincture of time.
5: Yeah, no, I think it's it's been an amazing revolution, and uh, you know, to be able to replace someone's heart valve, and we do it with the patient with light sedative, almost like a colonoscopy, um, breathing on their own, Mm. uh, and uh, you know, at the end of it all. They can go home in 24 to 48 hours with just a little Band-Aid on their groin where we went in with the catheters. Um, and so it's a remarkable uh, technology. Um, in terms of the, the concept of risk, like, you know, we've talked about older patients, people have more comorbidities. It's definitely a, 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 either as good or better than the open operation. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I think in younger people, we're still figuring out what role TAVR has. Um, but in the patients who are, you know, over seventy or over seventy-five, for sure, um, if it's possible to do it with a transcatheter valve, and not everyone's anatomy is suitable, but if it's possible, that's usually our default.
4: And I and I like that you emphasize age in a in a different respect. We didn't even talk about. I didn't even ask you about the anesthesia. You mentioned the light anesthesia. What we use for colonoscopy um, is really miraculous. Uh, people drift into twilight sleep, sleep, and I'm sure you use the same medication. That brings us to the aorta itself. We talked about that being the largest artery that is the the water main. (laughs) It delivers that nice, fresh, oxygen-filled blood to every part of the body. It comes out that main thoroughfare, sends off the arteries to the surface of the heart first, and then goes through chest and belly. So an aneurysm, how would people picture what an aneurysm is?
5: So an aneurysm is an enlargement of a blood vessel. Um, There's a few different definitions we use, but typically with the aorta, any aorta that's larger than four centimeters is considered to be an aneurysm, uh, which is about double the size that it should be. Um, And uh, the, the reason why having an aneurysm is important is that if it, grows to a certain size where the wall of the aorta becomes so stretched like a balloon, so stretched and thin that it can actually tear or even burst. And those those two things can be, tearing is called aortic dissection, bursting is called rupture, that those two things can be incredibly fatal. Uh, And so knowing you have an aneurysm, diagnosing it and treating it before it gets that, large is really fundamental uh, to preventing aortic death. And aortic mm-hmm. aneurysms are, uh, depending on which stats you look at, somewhere between the 10th and 12th leading cause of death in the United States. So they're actually you know, pretty common. Mm-hmm.
4: And uh, they can occur in the chest, which we call thoracic aneurysms or in the belly, abdominal aneurysms. And the risk factors, no surprise, high blood pressure, smoking, all those things that irritate blood vessels are going to hit uh, the aorta, um, sometimes infection, or if you have a systemic inflammatory condition, kind of like COVID, when it we, we learned it was inf- causing inflammation in people's arteries, um, what causes them to rupture? I guess after they get to a certain size? or
5: Yeah, so typically once the aorta is hit, somewhere between 5 and 5.5 centimeters, the risk starts to go up. Uh, and abdominal aneurysms and mm-hmm. aneurysms in the near the heart, or what we call the ascending aorta, uh, have a bit of a different um, pathology. The abdominal aneurysms are typically from high blood pressure and smoking. The aneurysms that are closer to your heart often are more related to things called connective tissue disorders or uh, alterations in the in the proteins or the Different substances that make up our aortic wall—muscle, uh, collagen—all these different things that actually hold our aorta together—and um, it causes the aorta to become unhealthy mm-hmm. in in the in one of its layers, and that actually causes the aneurysm to form. One of the things I think that's really evolving mm-hmm. is this idea that the aorta is an organ—that it's it's actually a living thing. It's not a pipe. It's not a, It's it's actually an organ that's alive. And a lot of the things that we do uh, like have high blood pressure or uh, smoke can actually influence its function and hurt it.
4: We have about a minute left, uh, Namesh, because I want to talk about how you decide who needs surgery at what point. I know there are strict guidelines that that you can follow, but um, surgery is never a welcome decision unless it is life-threatening. But there are advances now that you're they're able to, again, be star worry and use laser or photodynamic therati- therapy that can help rebuild those protein or collagen crosslinks. Tell us about that a little bit in our minute, and then we'll jump to our uh, final segment.
5: Yeah, so still, still very experimental, but cool science, nothing clinical out there yet. But uh, there's this idea that you can actually rebuild the strength of the aorta. My patients always tell me, can I, ever, can I do anything to make this thing shrink? And I usually tell them you might be able to make it stop growing by having really good blood pressure control, avoiding lifting heavy weights or putting stress on your body. But I've I've never Mm. had an option to make it shrink. And there are um, some experimental treatments that people are looking at where uh, you can actually potentially using uh, laser light or other forms of light in combination with chemicals um, uh, in contact with the aortic wall. Um, that may actually be able to rebuild uh, the strength of the aorta. So that's kind of still a bit uh, science science fiction, um, but it's something on the horizon.
4: But that's why we keep collecting data and, and keep trying, move an inch forward, and uh, see where it takes us. Let's take a little break, and we'll be back for a wrap up with Dr. Namesh Desai.
0: Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross.
6: At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com.
2: Your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems.
4: And in our final segment of Your Radio Doctor, we call this segment Your Weekly Prescription, brought to you by Genentech. Dr. Namesh Desai, you know so much and you've really taught us some very valuable information. I'd like to spend these final minutes on, we talked about um, aneurysms or a bubble or uh, in the aorta, that main water main that delivers blood through the rest of the body. The, The really tough thing about it, just like early cancers, there are no symptoms. You can be walking around with a four and a half or five centimeter bubble in there ready to, well, maybe not ready to burst, but growing. And so- how do we know it's there? Maybe we pick it up coincidentally, you have a CAT scan for diverticulitis or something else. So it's a matter of luck or hereditary. What does hereditary, sorry, what does role does heredity play if your mom or dad has had an aneurysm? Do we, are there guidelines to screen people with
5: certain risk factors? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the Hereditary plays a major role in the ascending aortic aneurysms or so the aneurysms in the chest. We think it still plays an important role in the abdominal ones as well, although we know there's a lot more degeneration there from high blood pressure and smoking. Uh, most of the patients who see me for aortic aneurysms in the chest had it for, come with one of two problems. One, it was found completely incidentally that they had a, a lung cancer screening, CAT scan, they yeah. had an echo of their heart, an ultrasound of their heart, that happened to show the aneurysm. Sometimes they had a chest x-ray that the shadow of the heart looked a little bit unusual. And the radiologist said, well, maybe you should get a CAT scan just to understand why your shadow looks different. Um, Aneurysms are silent killers um, and they can grow inside you uh, for years and years and years and never cause any symptoms. The ones close to the heart sometimes actually can pull your aortic valve apart and cause it to start leaking. Um, and we often see that in bicuspid valve patients, actually. So that's a group of people who are actually coming with symptoms from their aneurysm. But beyond that, almost every aneurysm in the chest, especially if you're having symptoms, it's likely because it's a, it is about to tear or rupture. Mm. Uh, and you're having some kind of chest pain or um, other sort of acute problem.
4: And abdominal aneurysm, that's a little less likely to interrupt anything around it. So if you decide that there is an aneurysm, do you patch it? Do you stent it? How do you go about putting your finger in the dike, as you might think?
5: Yeah, so uh, abdominal aneurysms uh, often uh, can be treated with stent grafts. So uh, they're basically tubes, just like the stents that go in the heart or the stent that's on the heart valves we were talking about before. Um, But they tend to be a little bit larger, and they're covered. So they're covered with a fabric like Gore-Tex or Dacron, um, different fabrics. Uh, And basically, you're relining the aorta without actually cutting the patient open. Uh, And then that aneurysm tends to just disappear uh, because there's no blood flowing through it anymore. With the aneurysms closer to the heart or in the ascending aorta, those typically still need open-heart surgery to repair. We don't have stent graft technology right now, um, except in the most unusual situations that can treat Mm -hmm. those aneurysms.
4: Well, I have to say, we continue to learn, and that keeps us humble. And with people like you at the helm, Dr. Namesh Desai, the director of the Penn Aorta Center, superstar cardiovascular surgeon, I can't thank you enough. And we want to remind our patients that if you do have um, an artificial valve or a valve from an animal in your heart and you have a fever, please tell your doctor immediately. Namesh, any other words of wisdom that you want to impart to our listeners?
5: Well, it's wonderful talking to you today. And, um, uh, you know, this stuff can get a little bit complicated. So there's great resources on the web, like the American Heart Association website or the Penn Medicine website that you um, your listeners can can go to for more resources to learn more about these beautiful uh, interesting and sometimes challenging problems
4: and we'll put them on our website your radio doctor.net. i know the american heart association is heart.org and hospital university of pennsylvania easy to find penn.edu i would think nimesh thank you once again right. thank you And now for your real champion, I call this segment, keep calm and love a tow truck driver. Dave Torres owns a towing company and often works through the night. He might have to move a car with a dead battery, a car with a flat tire, or maybe one that's parked illegally, but his list of services now includes a different type of pickup and delivery. Just after midnight on January 3rd, Dave was traveling on a dark street in North Philadelphia, ninth in Wyoming to be exact. He noticed a car that was pulled over. Someone strapped briefly and then left. He could see a woman in the car waving for help, so he got down from his tow truck and approached her. What happened next is hard to imagine. He asked the woman if she was all right. She explained that she had just delivered a baby. He was shocked at first and didn't believe her. She was hugging the steering wheel, frozen in pain. He called 911. While he waited for help, he left the phone on speaker so the dispatch operator could give him instructions. Dave lowered the back of her seat so she could lie down. He removed his sweatshirt, then his own t-shirt to wrap the baby on this cold January morning and place the baby on his mother's chest. The operator explained to Dave that he'd need to tie the umbilical cord. He took a shoelace from a sneaker in the back seat. Once he tied the cord, the baby started breathing. Finally, the rescue team arrived and took the mother's Latasha James to the hospital with her beautiful new little baby boy. Dave then took the keys to her car, parked it in a private lot where it would be safe until Latasha was discharged from the hospital. Latasha's story began on January 2nd. She had given birth before, so she didn't think the symptoms she noticed through the day represented labor. The baby wasn't due for another month. By eleven PM, her water broke. She called 911, they wanted to take her to one hospital, but she wanted to go to a different hospital and decided to drive herself. As she felt the baby entering the world, she pulled over and waited for help. Five different cars stopped, looked, and kept going. When Dave came, she knew he didn't catch on right away and in plain words, she had to say, the baby is in my pants. The story continues. It was Dave who picked her up at the hospital to bring her home. Latasha was so happy to bring her new baby Kaysen home to meet his big brother Carson, who just turned two on Valentine's Day. At birth, baby Kaysen weighed four pounds. Now he's thriving at a robust eight pounds. Latasha can only say, God bless Dave. He makes me so appreciative. And the next time I see someone in his help, I'll want to be like Dave. She is forever grateful. As for Dave, he's a dad. In fact, that night he was headed to drop something to his 19 year old daughter for work the next day. And when he didn't arrive on time, he was getting text messages, dad, where are you? He had to show his family pictures of the rescue vehicles to convince them of the incredible scene that surrounded him. He remembers the joy he felt when his daughter and two sons were born, but never thought he'd be acting as the stork. What's remarkable, as a tow truck driver, Dave always helps people in difficult situations and he's faced a a few tough situations in his own life. You see, two years ago, Dave returned from a 10 year term in prison. Maybe his dedication to helping others is a reflection of the gratitude he has for his freedom. As a man of faith, a Muslim, he feels very blessed and truly believes that everything happens for a reason. He reflects on those 10 years and says he learned from the experience which made him a better person. As Dave told his story and philosophy on faith, it was hard to hold back the tears. Dave was the angel who saved a mother and her baby on that cold morning when others turned away. To help a stranger in medical emergency, protect her car, then bring her home from the hospital? That's more than being a good person. It's a magnificent story of redemption. We salute you, Dave Torres and Latasha James, your real champions. A special thank you to Janice Armstrong, a writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Daily News, who published this story in the Inquirer on January 29th, and was kind enough to connect me with Dave and Latasha. Thank you, Janice Armstrong, my new bestie. Thank you for listening to your Radio Doctor every Saturday at 5 p.m. here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Listen to this show again and all of our shows on odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y, or wherever you get your podcasts. Friends, just around the corner is March, Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. The official screening age has been lowered from 50 to 45 for everyone, maybe younger if you have a family history. Join the Blue Lights Campaign. Put a strand of blue lights on the front of your home or business, then send a photo to bluelightscampaign at gmail.com. Share the message that screening saves lives. Next week, show number 150, An anniversary show with the return of Dr. Paul Offit, international expert on COVID. We'll take a look back where we've been, the state of the pandemic now, and what we might see in the future. Belated happy Valentine's Day to all my little heartbeats. Please follow us on social media. I heart you. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love Always here to remind you that your health is your wealth.
0: Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit YourRadioDoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been prerecorded.